All right, switching gears. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. We talked about it. We've kept you updated on its progression. Um, big news yesterday as it arrived in its final location, which I believe is a million and a half kilometers from Earth. This thing's way, way out there. It is so cool. So we're going to chat now with someone who um, is extremely excited about this. We are going to chat now with Gregory R. Sivakov, who is an associate professor in the University of Alberta Department of Physics, and he joins us now. Gregory, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So now, first of all, uh, you've got uh, personal and professional interest in this, right? I mean, you'll actually be one of the scientists that's using the information that this telescope gets back. You'll be using the telescope. Absolutely. I won't be able to control the telescope, but I'll be able to get the data for this. We're uh, approved for a couple of projects. Uh, it's really a, a great time. Um, just tell us, so the arrival of the space telescope, was I right, a million and a half kilometers away? Yeah, 1.5 uh, million kilometers away. Unbelievable. Quite a distance. Now, just the fact that it got there... It arrived where it's supposed to, and the fact that all of the different components, the heat shields and the mirror array and all that stuff worked, how amazing is that to you? Because it blows my mind. Well, I'll be honest. I think astronomers all over the world have been sitting on pins and needles waiting for all these things to progress the way that we hoped they would. This was, in my opinion, one of the more complex deployments uh, astronomy has ever seen. And just seeing it all unfold and having it not just unfold, but unfold so well has been, you know, jaw-dropping. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's amazing. Um, now, what's the timeline? Now that it's up there and now that it's, it's worked perfectly so far, when do you anticipate you might be able to see some data? So we have several months ahead of us where the telescope is really going to be going through a, a shakedown we're going to try to get everything uh, calibrated as well as we can. This is sort of the crucial thing so that the uh, first images that we present to the public actually show the true capacity of JWST. And we think that we'll be starting that in, um, you know, in about six weeks. We'll be sort of getting towards that step. And then we'll be starting to take some of these um, images for what astronomers like to call first light, where we sort of reveal the first images to the public uh, with an eye towards that, um, maybe in May. And then after that, uh, we should slowly begin the first stages of getting data. My projects, um, we don't actually know when they're going to be uh, precisely scheduled, but basically we're looking at data anywhere probably from six months to a, a year from now. Okay. Now, in, in reading what you're going to be working on, um, I've never heard of this before. To me, immediately I thought of zombie stars. Would that be a fair way of... Just describe us to us what your work is, is centered around here. Sure. So most of my work, I like to call that I, what I observe are the stellar undead. And so I call these the stellar undead because these are dead stars that are reinvigorated as they feed on the atmospheres of very nearby living stars. So these dead stars are things like black holes, which we've all heard about, uh, neutron stars, which are the mass of the Earth, but the, sorry, the mass of the sun, but the size of Edmonton or Calgary, the um, white dwarfs, which are the mass of the sun, but the size of the Earth, these very compact stars have lived their life. And as they eat material uh, from a nearby star, we can start seeing them again in a sort of a whole new life. I, I 
entire, entire talks where I talk about the zombies, werewolves, and vampires among them. It's so cool. Now, how does this telescope work into what you do? How will it change your work? So there, there, there's a couple of aspects. This telescope is following on from the Hubble Space Telescope. And the Hubble Space Telescope was best suited for observing light, uh, observing the electromagnetic spectrum in light that we typically see as human beings. James Webb Space Telescope is more focused on the near infrared. This is light that is redder than red, um, much longer wavelengths, much lower uh, frequencies and lower energies. And this type of uh, uh, stuff for what I uh, study is very good because it turns out that, for instance, black holes, when they're eating a nearby star, Mm -hmm. they also burp out material. And in these burps, you can see these very brightly in near-infrared and radio. And the near-infrared is actually uh, probing the spot of these burps that is closest to the black hole. So it's uh, very critical that we have a a telescope like James Webb around. Now, I'm getting um, questions from my listeners, and every time we talk about James Webb, same thing comes up. Big Bang, Big Bang, Big Bang. Are we going to see the Big Bang? Are we going to be able to discover where the Big Bang was? Like, how do you even know where to point the telescope? How much is the Big Bang fitting into what's going on with James Webb Space Telescope? So, so James Webb is very much focused uh, on the early parts of the universe's evolution, but the Big Bang itself is actually something that um, is, is not as well suited for studying with James Webb. We tend to study more uh, uh, the Big Bang with things at larger uh, wavelengths in the microwave regime. Um, and the thing about for the Big Bang is it happens everywhere. It's not like a where. Okay. And when we observe the Big Bang, what we do is we actually observe the entire sky around us and we look at the structure of that for understanding things like the Big Bang. Uh, what we're really interested most in James Webb is understanding sort of things like how exactly the very first stars formed and how the first galaxies formed. So this is in the galaxy, uh, sorry, the universe's perspective. This is very much its uh, its uh, first uh, early infancy. So not quite the birth, but you know. Uh, very young in the universe. Okay, I'm going to ask a question here. It's probably going to sound really dumb to somebody with a brain like yours. But looking back, looking through this telescope, and I think I've wrapped my head around that some of the light that we'll be seeing um, is coming from things that don't exist anymore. You're actually looking back through time, right? Yep. So, So, uh, and this is not a dumb question at all. This is something that's very hard for all of us to wrap our head around. (laughs) But I'm wondering, so is it almost like you're, you're watching... A movie, then you're sort of seeing a chunk of time play out. Like, it's not just a snapshot. Is it possible to see, you know, a, a period of time that actually occurred billions of years ago? So, absolutely. It all depends on how far back we're looking. What the issue is that light, it takes a certain time for it to reach us. So, the light that we see on Earth was emitted by the sun about eight minutes ago. So that light already is a small little snapshot of the universe a little bit younger. Uh, depending on what you're observing with James Webb, you're going back farther and farther and farther. Yeah. And some of the things we're looking at are 10 billion years old, potentially, with, uh, and older even, with James Webb Space Telescope. Unreal. Just unreal stuff. Um, Gregory, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, we'll be following this closely, and hopefully we'll chat again. Absolutely. be my pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. That is Gregory R. Sivikov, one of...
the researchers who will be using this James Webb, James Webb Telescope, Associate Professor in the University of Alberta Department of Physics, 